I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a technologist, a journalist, an author, and a fellow podcaster and entrepreneur who is determined to explain how our societies and way of life will change under the force of exponential growth of technologies. He is determined to bring together the two cultures of innovation and tech and and of business on one side and society and policy on the other side in order to help us understand the real implications of the technological changes that we are witnessing. Azim Azar is the writer behind the Exponential View, which is Britain's leading platform for in-depth analysis of technology. His weekly newsletter is read by more than 200,000 people from around the world. He is also the host of the chart-topping podcast in technology, which is the Exponential View podcast. This is a top 10 podcast in the UK in the technology category, a top 50 in the US, and he has hosted guests from Tony Blair to Yuval Harari to Elif Shafak. Oh, I have to ask him to introduce as one of my favorite authors of all time, and many, many other prominent science, culture, politics, economics, and technology leaders. He is also the author of a new book, The Exponential Age in the US, Exponential in the UK. And um, the book is basically attempting to bring together lots of Azim's experiences around the exponential growth and its impact and what needs to be done in society in order to cope with the changes that are about to come to us. I'm going to be a guest on Azim's podcast in a few weeks' time to speak about Scary Smart. Today, we're going to be talking about Perhaps something for most of us who are non-technologists may not really be fully aware of, but we're going to be talking about the true rate of growth of technology and how that impacts our life. I hope you're going to enjoy that conversation uh, with Azim Azar. Oh, hello. Hello. What's, what's that, a Sinclair? It's a Sinclair ZX81 with the 16K additional RAM pack. Oh my God, you bring back memories. And I have somewhere my first programming guide to it from 1981. So did I write code? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Have I written code that went into production? Um, Yes. Uh, Have I ever been a software developer, had that as a job? No. Okay, I think we're spot on. Like literally, we, I'm exactly those things. I did write code that went into production. I had a couple of startups when I was very young. Yeah. That basically, I mean, it was so fun at the time. I remember one time I wrote retail systems for fashion retailers. Can you imagine I lived in a time where fashion retailers didn't have software to manage their sales? Yeah. And I, I walked to them at the time I used to work in IBM. And I go to them and I go like, how about 
you buy a PC and look at what you can do, you know, barcode scanning and you can keep inventory and you can order. And they would go like, wow, life is amazing, right? And look at where we are now. Life is... Uh, Absolutely. Well, I, I programmed for, not for the retail industry, but for a local pharmacy. Uh-huh. And uh, we used a language called uh, Turbo Pascal. I remember Pascal, of course. I wrote Pascal. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and this was the Borland version. Oh. And yes. I didn't do any of the, the complex stuff, but I did some basic things there. And I built for my parents in Lotus 123. Um, <laughs> I, I built uh, an accounting system using you know macros and all of the things that you yeah. could do there. And, and then I built things in PHP, but... There's a point where ultimately there are other ways I'll spend my time. I'm not a 10x or 100x or 1000x developer. Systems are more complex yeah. these days. But you know, if I had to put something together and string a bunch of low-code tools together, I'd, I'd feel okay doing that. And I have for home. You know, there are lots yeah. of little systems at home that are uh, you know, knitted together that way. I felt there was a point in my life. I mean, I coded, I wrote code until probably eight years ago, 10 years ago. Right. But there is a point where you have to constantly unlearn. You have to constantly unlearn. It's not what you learned when you wrote Pascal works against you. You know, right. when, when you it really, it's, it's just, it, it changes so drastically. And I think these were the times where I had to tell myself like you, you know, yeah, I can continue to write code, but it's definitely not the best use of my time. And, uh, but it was so much fun. Did you have a Commodore after the Sinclair? No, uh, I was in the UK. So we had a, a BBC Micro, uh, oh. which was a uh, based on the 6502 processor. Okay. Uh, and that was uh, had BBC Basic. And the company that built it, the Acorn, had this wonderful basic language inside where you could write quite a lot of complex things. You could also go into Assembler, which I often did. Uh But Acorn then got into risk computing and became ARM. Oh, is that true? Okay, I didn't know that. ARM used to stand for Acorn Risk Machine. And back in 1988, my IT teacher at high school was old mates with somebody at Acorn Computers and got us the second or third working risk chip processor that they had had made and it was boxed as a coprocessor that you plugged alongside a, a BBC mm. uh, computer which was on the I think the 6502 chip and so I actually started to program and use risk devices in 1989 but I had no idea of the context I had no idea of the history I had no idea that this was a new architecture you yeah. know you're 17 years old you're doing something with it with a teacher or with a friend and and then you look back at that moment in history and think oh 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 yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> i know i mean it is actually i mean it was so much more fun i have to admit because we had so little to go around with you really had to discover everything write it from scratch there was no internet to find anything about anything that you're writing it was absolutely but it was so much fun and I have to believe that you must have continued on a similar path. So, of course, I know exactly what what you did, but share with us. So you went from being this kind of techie to journalism, right? Yes. Why? (laughs) It's so interesting. And I think it is about, it's about where people are. So I had an exposure to computers really early on. And 
when I got to university, I had decided to move away from, from the sciences, which had been my forte at school. I think for very immature reasons, the kind of reasons that a 17-year-old <laughs> comes up with. And was it to do with what my social life might look like? Was it to do with what looked like prestigious jobs when you left university? Yeah. And Oxford has this law course that is famously difficult. So why not apply for that? And you can get become a barrister and wear a wig. <laughs> when you graduate Great so I cause. think those were the yeah I think those were the things that were driving my, my decision making and so I happened in to university and I ended up after doing a bit of law changing to a, a different degree but my interest in technology remained I mean I had a I had a computer at a time when very few students had computers I had this desktop pc clone that was in my my room yeah and I stayed really, really interested in it. And one of my friends decided he wanted to set up a student paper because at the time, desktop publishing was just taking off. Yeah. And Aldous and Quark had these applications, PageMaker and Quark Express on Macintosh's, the Mac 2 platform. And they were changing the way you could create magazines. And he said, come and do this. And so I was fascinated by the computers. And of course, you know, you end up being called the editor. But in reality, my interest was less the journalism. It was more, you know, the technology and doing color mm. scanning and figuring out how to turn that into newsprint and those types of, of things. And so you end up people thinking that you're a journalist. And of course, I'm proud of what I did there. It was a great thing to do as a student. But I also discovered the internet in uh, about 1991, 92. And I fell down this well so much, not exactly the well, not the whole electronic link, but the well of the internet, the of Usenet groups and FTP sites and mm -hmm. really, really fell in love with it. So when I graduated university in 94, the strongest thing I had that anyone could understand was that I had built and run student newspapers. So I looked like a journalist. Mm. But I had happened there. And, and that is how the transition happened. And when I applied for jobs, I was rejected by more than 50 companies. Oh, interesting. From every management consultancy, every bank. Tech companies weren't hiring in those days. Uh, they, well, they didn't exist. I mean, Netscape didn't exist. Yahoo didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Every bank rejected me. IBM, NCR, and what was the other one? Uh, British company. Oh, uh, there was ICL. Yeah, I see exactly. And ICL, yeah. And digital was about to happen for mini computing. And that was really it. Right. Yeah. 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 So there was, and I, I applied everywhere and I was rejected by the media, by the management consultants, by the banks, and eventually ended up trying to do a bit of freelance work here and there, designing logos for small businesses and, and so on. And that my break came when the Guardian, who I'd applied to many times unsuccessfully, said to me, we've got an internet event happening at a convention center. Will you go along and help? Mm. So I went along and true to stereotype, I was the Indian guy there and I was doing IT support. So, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so I was fixing the modems and getting them to connect to the internet at 14.4 um, kilobits a second. Remember? And I got on with the team and they asked me to come back into the office uh, a few days later. And I kept showing up. And then after a few days, someone let me write a small story and taught me a little bit about how you should write a story like that. 
And then within a few weeks, I was I had a lot of responsibility in that and in, in producing a weekly section for The Guardian. And that's how it happened. But it happened through accident, really, and through yeah. some people being very, very kind. And you wrote as a journalist for a while, but you didn't stay, right? Eventually, something took over again, right? What happened then? Yeah, well, you know, it's about your fit. I mean, I love the analysis and I love learning and I love learning from people and I love learning from books and from reading, but I don't have a nose for news and I'm not a natural journalist. I don't have that journalistic empathy that they have or disempathy perhaps. Mm. Uh, and so, and, and the other thing is that I wanted to do things, right? The thing about being a journalist is that you often stand on the sidelines and they're yeah, often very impactful, but things. it's not yeah. the same as creating a product. Yeah. You know, the pride at my university was not the stories we broke. It was that I built a product, the newspaper that many people read. And so I was getting really, really itchy about wanting to do things. And I was really lucky at The Economist and at The Guardian, I was doing things. I was building their websites and I was running the parts of their very first online efforts. So I, but I wanted to do more of that. And I was getting a bit itchy and frustrated about just being a writer, especially as I felt like, you know, I felt like I was someone wearing the tuxedo who would be much more comfortable wearing like a tennis shirt because <laughs> I, I wasn't a natural journalist, right? I was yeah. kind of masquerading in a way. Mm -hmm. And you went on, so you became an entrepreneur yourself, right? You That's started right. a few tech companies yourself and some succeeded and some didn't. I can expect that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing. I mean, the ones that didn't succeed were just really, I mean, they were, they were just as hard work. And I they, know. Oh, I know. They really are. And it's heartbreaking and you're really young. And in 1999, in the United Kingdom, there was no ecosystem, there was no support network, there were no successful tech founders, there were no blogs where you could read what success mm. and failure looked like from Silicon Valley. I had relationships there, which helped me, people who had, you know, I got to know many of the early founders, and but I, I knew people who worked in the scene, so they would try to give me these ideas of what it's like to go on this journey. But nobody knew in Europe in, in 99. There were a few of my peers who were extremely successful at that time. But I look at the mistakes that we we made. You know, we didn't even have a notion of product market fit, right? I mean, this is before Eric Ries had come up with the Lean Startup, right? So yeah. uh, there, was, there was a much lower level of knowledge and a much smaller support base. I think the law firm I used had never put together, and it was a great law firm, an employee share options program with a four-year vest and a one-year <laughs> cliff, which is absolutely standard in Silicon Valley. And now it's standard in the UK, but 20 years ago, no one had done it before. Yeah. It's very different times. I mean, I, I think, I love that we started a conversation in this place, Azim, because I think you and I have lived through a world that is very, 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 very different than today. Mm-hmm. And that's even from a techie's point of view. Of course, everyone lived in that world, but from a techie's point of view, it's just so massively different. It's it's shocking. And and of course, you know, if you extrapolate this forward, that in itself is staggering. But if you extrapolate it on an exponential curve, which is really the beauty of your recent work for the last few years, it's scary. And and I I wanna pinpoint a specific moment in history and maybe start from there. Let's talk about Netscape. Mm -hmm. which I believe personally 
In comparison to the printing press, I think the one thing that fully changed the world maybe 500 years later was the internet and the hyperlink and the idea of being able to search through information, yeah. right? So tell me your memories of that moment. I mean, first of all, do you think it is a pivotal moment? Yeah, I think it is a pivotal moment. I define the shift slightly differently. And, you know, we can talk about that. But I think about back to the web. The first time I used the web was on a browser called World Wide Web. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And then you used Mosaic, I guess, after that. Remember? I know. Then I used Lynx after that because my college had, we only had VT220 terminals. Okay. Uh, yes. Green screen. And exactly. so it was text only. Mm -hmm. And then the physicists got access to Mosaic which I was not, you know, I was doing social sciences. So I think Netscape was, um, when the browser came out, was really, really important. It wasn't just the the accessibility and the, the hyperlinks and then the ability to search. It was that we could also communicate. We eliminated the barrier for publishing. So when I got involved in the internet, like you, it was already a two-way medium because you came into it through the Usenet groups, which were like discussion boards, and you posted or you put something up on an FTP site yeah. or you would be in a bulletin board. So it was already this two-way mechanism. And I think the power of the internet is not just that it eliminated distribution costs. I mean, we think back to the, to the printing press. What the printing press did was the printing press made it extremely cheap to originate and copy a material, which meant we could have this extreme growth in the number of authors. It wasn't just copying out the Bible, but it was still somewhat expensive to print and then distribute. And that's why publishers got power and distribution channels got power and it was easy to censor. When the net came about, distribution became really, really cheap. I mean, authoring became cheap as well, but the fact that I could on you know one of my news groups send a message to a thousand people easily, was really, I think, the dramatic, dramatic change. And then, of okay. course, when the browser comes, what the browser does is it makes it, all of this so much more accessible and, and understandable. And I think that has been absolutely transformative for us over the last 30 years. So I'm totally with you, by the way. I think the idea was, if you think about it at that time, writing a small pamphlet and sending it to a thousand people was considered success. And then you know, the internet comes along and everything you publish can reach a thousand people. Now it reaches millions and hundreds of millions right. of people. And you have that, that rise of a totally new environment where a 14-year-old can be an influencer and change the minds of, you know, a hundred million people. And that dynamic, however, is so groundbreaking that I believe humanity has actually not fully internalized the massive amount of change. So because it happened gradually and then smartphones yeah. come and then now the life that we live, I don't think there is anything that we do that is not connected to technology. I mean, just this conversation right now is technology, right? Absolutely. And I think that that is, you know, that's what I call in my book, uh, which is Exponential in, in the UK and The Exponential Age in the US, I call that the exponential gap. The fact that there is a gap between the potential of the technology and the services built on it and how it gets used and the realities and expectations of our day-to-day -day lives. And in previous generations of technology, the institutions, our customs and habits and norms and our laws had time, decades or sometimes centuries, to adjust to the dispersion of that technology. 
But even then, at that speed of dispersion of, say, the printing press, it had untold changes, right? The Reformation and the split of the Catholic Church and then the Renaissance and uh, the Enlightenment and, and so on that come off, off that. But the rate of change today is really, really fast. But our, the speed that, with which our institutions adapt is much, much slower. And that gap, I think, describes why we see so many pressing issues across the globe from polarization in politics to increased levels of military conflict to these dominant platform businesses to the turn against globalization. Mm -hmm. I think they're all connected to the exponential gap, the fact that the technology has created these potentials and is accelerating, but we haven't figured out how to get our institutions and our expectations and our customs and practices to move with them. I'm with you 100%. I mean, let's explain to our listeners who may, I mean, for you and I, it's almost intuitive. Let's explain what exponential means. Like, why is it different? Why is it that things are moving at a speed that's almost ungraspable? Definitely, we're not fit for, I think. Uh, <laughs> no, we're not fit for it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm, you know, the way I define um, exponential is essentially a change of a constant proportion. So something that might grow by, you know, 5% every annum compounded. So it's the beauty of compound interest. Mm. But the thing about exponential technologies and, and the way I talk about them is that they must improve by at least 10% every year for many, many decades. And if something improves by 10% every year, it means that it doubles every seven years and in yes. 14 years that it quadruples. If it improves at 41% on average every year, which is what silicon chips do, that doubling happens quicker than every two years. And so that has a real impact in what you can do with it and then what people do do with it. So the biggest challenge with exponential technologies is the speed with which they get ultimately get cheaper. And great example here is in biology with genomics and gene sequencing. Mm. The first time we sequenced a human genome, which was about 20 years ago, it cost around between 300 and 500 million dollars. Mm. And at that price, you can do it if you're a nation on a couple of people. <laughs> and as of the end of 2019, that price had fallen to just under $1,000. And at $1,000, you can actually, as a rich nation, offer genome sequencing to large parts of your population. At $1, which we will get to soon enough, everyone in humanity can have their genome sequenced. And once that happens, that then starts to change lots of the world, right? Because you get these complementary businesses emerging. You get better healthcare because it can be more personalized. But you get these second and third order ripple effects because now we know your genetic makeup and we know your risk factors for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's from the point at which you're born. It changes the nature of insurance, whether it's health insurance or life insurance or work insurance. And we've had assumptions of risk pooling that have been built into insurance that get unpicked. And then if we leave that to the market, they will get unpicked. And then we have problems of equity and fairness and random genetic luck determining people's entire life outcomes. And all from the exponential technology of genome sequencing getting cheaper at 50, 60, 70%, whatever the number is per annum compounded over years. And 
the exponential gap in that instance is a set of gaps that are around things like, well, what happens to insurance? What happens to fairness? What happens to, to you know, collective... Discrimination, really. Discrimination, collective yeah. safety nets. Yeah. Yeah, I want to come back to that. I, I want to spend a considerable amount of time on understanding the positives and the negatives because that's a very, very, very complex environment. But let me restate for everyone. So exponential growth. If I gave Azim an orange today and another orange tomorrow, that basically means I'm growing his number of oranges by one every day, right? So that's a linear growth. If I gave yeah. him one today and two tomorrow and then four the following day, like doubling what the growth that he has every day, in no time at all, I would have to give him, uh, you know, millions of oranges because we've moved from half a million the day before to a million the following day. And yeah. that that is exactly what we are going through. I mean, there was this uh, legend about... The rice. The rice, remember? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't remember. Someone helped Chinese emperor do something amazing. And then he said, what do you want me to give you? And he basically said, give me one grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard and then double it and double it and double it. And then there was not enough rice in the nation to just cover that chessboard. Now, with that exponential growth, as you rightly said, Azim, there is definitely positives and negatives that we would want to come to. But I also want you to explain something that I love about your work, which is the idea of that cycle of how we develop tech, but tech sort of develops us. Yeah. And I think that's important for people to recognize that it's not that you now have an iPhone or a smartphone, that the smartphone is actually making you. We're not just making it, it's making us. Talk about this a bit. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I love I loved the example of the, of the chessboard. And in my book, I have an example of, of rain falling in a soccer stadium, which had turns out to be exponential rain. And, you know, readers can take a <laughs> look at that and, that. Yeah. and be, be surprised by the outcome because exponential rain gets very big and very heavy quite quickly. And I think the, the question of trying to understand what a, what a technology is, is a really important one. We live in a world where I think recently media has separated out technology from humanity. And technology is something that brilliant people in Shenzhen and Silicon Valley produce, and it is pushed into us. And it is meant to arrive as this, this innocent power that we can then apply for good or for bad. But I think technology is much more innate to the human condition and is really tied up with, with humanity. The idea of technology starts off as, a, as being a process, right? Uh, technology is my expression of needing to get something done. So I want to, I want to make sure that my garden gate doesn't keep swinging open so I invent the bolt yeah. uh, on that gate. And so technology is, is quite purpose-driven. And so when we look at how technologies interact with people, they start with a very, very natural ambition that we have to probably make our lives a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have to start from that, that starting point. And then the question is, what is that, how does that then play out as we, we progress through history? And as we progress through history, the technologies that we end up creating are often driven by the experiences that we currently have. We're creating in ancient Egypt, right, surplus of wheat. So we need grain silos in order to store our wheat. And now that we have a surplus of wheat in grain silos, we need to be able to account for what that wheat is. So we invent number systems. And now that we have number systems, we 
end up needing social roles, people who know the numbers to account for what the wheat is. And so power starts to emerge. And I think exactly the same process occurs today, that cultures and contexts shape the priorities of the technology and they shape the way in which the technology gets built. One really good example of that, I think, comes from the work of a woman called Caroline Criado Perez, who looked at the development of many different technologies from a gender lens. Mm. And she pointed out in her book that seatbelts for cars were often unsafe for women, but safe for men, because the men working for the car companies tested the seatbelts on male-figured body dummies, not on women. And that's a great example of a technology reflecting a, a societal power that, that finds its way back. I, one of the things I try to do in my book is I try to get people to understand that we all participate in the shaping of technology by articulating society's needs and expectations. And if we don't, we become technology takers rather than becoming technology makers. And I think it's it's really important that we become articulate in what we want. And the other idea I try to sort of put to bed is this idea that technology is neutral, that technology is, is fashioned, you know, like a, a spear from Zeus for you to either you know, kill your brother with or hunt the ox with. I mean, it, it's not like that. Technology is fashioned with a lot of politics built inside of it. And that politics comes from an economic and a social context. And I hope when people read the book, they, they realise that if they're technologists, they are techno-sociologists. And if they're people who live in society, they need to understand how to talk to techno-sociologists and technologists about expressing their needs and shaping how the technology develops. But that's it's not that easy. I often tell people in my in my talks, even when I talk about happiness, I say, look, I haven't changed my phone in the last five years, maybe more, I think, you know, for the simple reason that there has not been a feature that was offered to me that I said, oh, this actually is something that makes my life easier. The problem is, I don't know where iPhone is now. They must be going on 13 or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not even following anymore right? because I think the iPhone 6 was probably a fabulous piece of technology that we could have just made a little bigger and a little faster and that would have been it. And since then, yeah, you get a better camera who really, really needs a better camera. Like we're just consuming more storage, right? Mm -hmm. None of us are professional enough to recognize all of those amazing things. Fine, right. right? We got a better camera, but maybe then the iPhone 10 was fantastic, right? And I keep telling people, if you don't stop buying the next iPhone, Apple will just continue to throw shit at you. Simply, if they have a queue standing outside because the next phone comes in purple, they're going to focus their entire innovation around the next purple color, right? That's Absolutely. not what we want. We, we want to tell them, I need something that helps me spend less time and be more effective with what I do on the phone, right? Yeah. And if we insist on that and stop buying, they'll, they'll change. But I don't think anyone is doing this. I don't think anyone is actually shaping technology at all. We're just consumers, all of us. Whatever Instagram tells us to do, we do. You know, there's a couple of different things um, I think that we can look at. You know, one is that what you've described is a, it's an extension of 
the challenges of consumer capitalism and the yeah. the idea of status through acquisition of stuff and the advertising and the marketing you know business that that goes with it and there's a really deep deep undercurrent uh, of that and you know humans do seem to cr crave status uh, uh, in all sorts of ways and this sort of this recent boom in non-fungible tokens these sort of blockchain-based pictures yeah. is a great example of a sort of status craving. But I also think that what you describe, which is what do people want and how do they express it, which is a really important part of a market economy, is becoming quite effective. So I think if you look at Apple as a good example, you know, Apple's move towards zero waste and recycling programs for phones is driven by consumers saying, you know, we want you to waste less. Their move towards privacy and on-device privacy is a response to an expression of consumer needs. And so the market in that sense is working. It may not be working perfectly well or as quickly as we would like, but that is how the expression happens. And in other areas, I think we start to see this happening quite quickly. So, for example, in electric vehicles, they've reached their inflection point now where consumers are starting to say, we want electric vehicles, we don't want gasoline-powered cars, and you're seeing the buying behaviour changing. The question is, what can we do to have consumers care about the things that matter, whether it's in your case arguing we don't need to accumulate more stuff, or whether it's saying we need to make sensible decisions about the environment and resource usage. That, I think, is the interesting challenge, because once they do care, companies are kind of optimised, as you pointed out, to slavishly follow the consumer and give them what they need. Exactly. And I think the, the idea here is my next work in Scary Smart is to say, is simply saying, this is entirely up to us. We can shape the future because yeah. not because we're the developers of artificial intelligence, but because we are the users, we're the focal point of artificial intelligence. And, and because our societal behaviors can shape the way that intelligence will work, which I think is, is maybe a good segue to, to shift our attention a little bit from past to future, which I think you mm -hmm. beautifully articulate in your work. The idea of exponential is proven by looking at the past. But then if you, if you start to imagine the future, it suddenly becomes quite staggering, if I may say, right? You're saying there are five main technologies today that are shaping our technology landscape, but our society in very profound ways, and, and that those are also undergoing exponential growth. Can we talk a bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. The one that we're most familiar with is computing and computing and AI. They've been on the, the backdrop from Moore's Law since the 1960s, which has meant that there's been a 41% improvement in the power of a chip for a given price since the early 1960s. And that really, really tremendously compounds. So it means that the computers that we have, I have an iPhone here, today are much more powerful than the ones that you know, NASA or the US government had when I was a teenager. In fact, the computers yeah. in our drawers that we don't use anymore are more, more powerful than those. Mm. And what happens with that declining price of computation is what we've experienced, which is you can build, use computing all over the place in, in fashion retail and in food retail. And so it becomes pervasive everywhere and it's created 
entire industries and everything we now access happens through the computer. So computing and AI are the first bits of the technology, but there are three other domains I think that are really important and they're as, as transformative. The second is the area of energy. So you and I come from a world where everything was fossil fuel powered and fossil fuels were convenient and they were cheap, uh, they were filthy, and we now know exactly how filthy they are. In order to decarbonize our grids, we will need to move towards renewable power. And I think the, the positive aspect of the exponential age is that many of the key technologies like solar power and wind power and battery storage are also on an exponential trajectory. So for example, between 1975 and 2019, the cost to create one watt of power from a photovoltaic cell oh, yes. declined 500 times. Yeah, absolutely. And when I started writing my book, it was the case that renewables were just slightly more expensive than the cheapest fossil fuels for generating electricity. And when the book is published on September the 7th, it'll be the case that all over the world, in virtually every case, solar and wind will be cheaper for generating electricity, Correct. even unsubsidized. Yeah. So that's one aspect of an exponential technology. And there are many aspects of that within the space of renewables. We're seeing it within batteries as well, which are so important for cars and trucks and, and grid storage. The third area that is really important is this intersection between engineering and biology. So people like you and I grew up and biology was like this weird, is it a <laughs> science or is it something else? You know, yeah. you're counting the number of worms in a field. That doesn't look like a science. And in the last 30 years, of course, we've been able to understand the mechanisms of biology from protein engineering and, and gene sequencing so much better. And this intersection between uh, biology and the methods of, of computing and, and engineering is creating what people are calling the bioeconomy, the ability to manipulate biology with some engineering tools. And when we look at those measures, so the cost to sequence a genome or the cost to reprogram a cell, those are declining actually much, much faster than Moore's law in silicon chips. And that's really, really tremendous because nature produces stuff. Any one of us who goes out and is lucky enough to walk in a forest sees that nature is incredibly productive and diverse and balanced. And yet it does it without a huge factory or a smokestack or a massive pipes and, uh, that you see in an industrial plant. Nature is elegant and nature is refined and nature does not use tons of energy to do what it needs to do. So our ability to now look at nature and start to say, how is it that a little plant fixes nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turns it into sort of something that the plant can use? But we have to use the Harbour-Bosch process, uh, 1,000 centigrade and 300 atmosphere of pressure <laughs> to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. What can we learn and can we do it? And I think that this biological technologies from protein engineering through to genome sequencing and cell reprogramming and some other areas um, will be very, very powerful. And I'm you know, happy to talk so much about that one. But the final technology area is to think about how we actually make things. So we have traditionally made things by taking a lump of rock and chiseling it away, or potentially we have chiseling it away until it's the shape that we like, or we've, we've made a cast or a mold and we've poured metal or plastic into it. 
Uh, but 3D printing, which is a kind of computer-controlled method where you can put a feedstock in and get it to print something, is also on an exponential curve. Roughly speaking, the main 3D printing methods are improving at around 30 to 35% per annum, which is a little slower than Moore's law, but it's still pretty good when that compounds. And so we're starting to see people 3D print organs for transplant surgery. One of my friends had his office in Dubai 3D printed, 2,500 square feet of concrete. <laughs> mm -hmm. Recently in, uh, I forget the country now, people used a big 3D printer connected to a solar panels to print a series of buildings using the local earth. So there was no material use at all. The sun gave its goodness to us. They used the local earth and they printed finished buildings. No cement, no concrete, no oil moved, no nails, no metal. Amazing. So those are, the, those are the main technology platforms and every single one of them is improving at this exponential rate, the grains of rice on our chessboard. And that creates a real potential for some kind of what will look, you know, in 20 years time, we'll look back and think we have some kind of abundance now around this. But, you know, I argue that that abundance is exciting, but it's not enough. I'm going to stop us here for a few seconds. I think uh, we will need to continue into perhaps another part of this podcast to continue to talk, maybe to turn a little more to the future and, and think about how the future is going to take us are we heading for a utopia or are we heading for a dystopia? So don't stop here. Continue to listen to part two with Azim Azar.